Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Bill Brocktrup to the show. Bill is a professional television, film, and stage actor best known for his role as John Irvin in ABC's critically acclaimed hit NYPD Blue. He has also had long-running roles on hit shows like Showtime's Shameless and TNT's Major Crimes, among dozens of other credits in television and film. Bill is a prolific stage actor, having played in theaters all across the country, and he is also co-artistic director of the Antius Theater Company in Glendale, where I am a member, and where he works alongside Kitty Swink, who was a previous guest on this podcast. He's written for Out Magazine, he's hosted AIDS Walks across the country, and he's spent numerous holidays abroad with the USO and Armed Forces Entertainment, visiting our troops all across the globe. I am thrilled to have him here so that I can finally admit that I totally watched him all throughout the 90s because my father loved NYPD Blue. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> thank you. Appreciate I thought that it. would uh, I was really looking forward to telling you that. I really oh, did. Awesome. My father loved NYPD Blue, and I totally, the first time I joined Antias and realized who you were, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> That's one of those moments where you're like, hey, you were in our living room for years. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I thank you. That yeah, makes me feel very good. It's sweet, right? And it's weird how that works, isn't it? I mean, I we could talk an hour about what that feeling is to have done a role in something that has so permeated someone else's life. It's so strange, but it's it really is fun. And it's fun to get to tell you that. Well, I'm very proud of it. And I'm, I'm very proud that it holds up and that people, you know, still uh, talk about it. And um, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And I just feel very lucky to have been involved. It was a great, great time. Well, now I want to talk to you about something else, which I'm really interested in. It's the USO stuff that you've done. I really would like to hear a story that exemplifies that experience for you or how you got into it and what it means to you. Sure. Because I've always been really interested in it. And I've thought, wow, if I ever had the opportunity, I think I'd really love to be a part of it. It sounds really, really powerful. Oh, wow. Okay. I got into doing that um, because of NYPD Blue. You know, NYPD Blue is a show that was very popular with, um, obviously, with cops, you know, with firefighters, with military people. So because of that, I got the opportunity to go on a number of visits with USO and Armed Forces Entertainment over Thanksgivings, Christmases, Fourth of July. And we went on meet and greet kind of tours where we would go and sign pictures, pass out T-shirts, tour people's workspaces from being like in the mess hall to being on a submarine to being like I landed on an aircraft carrier, which was like amazing. Wow, you um, had that experience. That's amazing. Yeah, people don't get that opportunity. And um, it was amazing. I, I have a lot of feelings about it because a lot of my journey has been about having my mind changed and about having my eyes opened to things. So, um, you know, I grew up, I was born in California, but we grew up in the Seattle area and Tacoma in particular when I was in high school. And I went to high school with all the kids from military bases. Uh, Fort Lewis is an army base and uh, McCord is an air force base. And all those kids went to my high school, mm. but my family was not in the military. My, we were not military kinds of people. My parents are a little too old to, to really have been hippies, but we were much more granola-y than, um, Hmm. that and so it's almost like your parents felt less comfortable than maybe you did well no i mean we were pretty judgy about the um the military I not see. the kids but the but the, not the kids the ethos the, of the military to some extent or the yeah, way it's politicized. And the guys who you know we'd see them come in on we'd see the soldiers come in on friday nights and I wanted to be artsy. We were the artsy kids, you know what I mean? And yeah. this is in the 80s. So this is, you know, in the middle of the Reagan years. And we were the artsy ones. And so we were the military guys. We kind of, not the kids of the military officers who were there. Those were all my friends. But the enlisted guys and stuff, we kind of looked down and it's really horrible. Now, I also felt like very kind of, you know, peacenicky and stuff. And because we were the drama club kids, you know, we went to, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and we're, and we're you know, yeah, at night and did these yeah. kind of things. It seems like it was some, you, you know, a liberal versus conservative kind of way. So now, all these years later, I have this opportunity to go and visit the military. And as an openly gay guy, which they knew, and I couldn't even believe they asked me, quite honestly, at the time wow. when this started, 
And I had my mind changed very much about the military and the people in it. I have a massive respect. I was able to meet on these trips, you know, everyone from generals, literally, to uh, 18-year-olds who had just enlisted, you know, have just arrived from Kansas or Arkansas, wherever they're from. And the level of commitment, the integrity to do their work, I, I have and remain super impressed. And I, I saw people in all kinds of situations. I was in the Persian Gulf. I was in Bosnia. I was in Germany and Italy, where we have a lot of troops. And it's just really impressive how the pride that people take in their work and the kindness with which I was treated. And I know that I was arriving there as a you know celebrity, and uh, if you will. <laughs> and certainly, my treatment was of a certain kind. But I, nobody ever batted an eye, and you know, gays in the military isn't, was quite an issue. So Yeah, I mean I well I certainly remember growing up with it. So you know the 90s would have been my high school into college years and for sure, you know, don't ask don't tell, all that stuff. You were told not to talk about it. Well, that's why I couldn't even believe they asked me to go, you know yeah. what I mean? It was certainly not a popular thing. Although as I said, I, and I was never hiding it, everybody knew. But I was treated respectfully the whole time. I don't know what people thought. You know, people can think whatever they think behind their backs. I don't know. And of course, there was a lot of gay people in the military. Maybe they appreciated it. I hope so. It was very meaningful for me. And I, I just feel like I've, I, it really opened my eyes to like an old prejudice that I had had from back in high school. Well, what a beautiful way to open. And what a wonderful way to indicate where this story is going, which is just evolution of thought and, and the way it shifted over throughout the years. I can't wait to hear the rest of your story. But now... <laughs> The moment for breakfast has arrived. What did you eat this morning for your first meal of the day? I've been I've been dreading this question because I listen to the podcast and, and people are always like, I mean, everyone's having a protein shake or like a piece of dry toast or something, like seven grape bread with no butter. I'm like, okay, I had a two poached egg, sausage, hash browns, cappuccino with whole milk. I love it. I thank you. Thank you for telling me that you <laughs> ate like a, a classic American breakfast. Yeah, I love breakfast. I eat that every day. Um, oh, really? Wow, yeah. wow. I love breakfast, and I'm very put off by all their, all those protein shakes that people have <laughs> there. Bill, I can't wait to get to the rest of it, so let's dive in. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Mm, well, you know, that's that's a little... Well, let me say... We grew up sort of as nothing. We didn't know about God or the Bible. We knew nothing about it. I'm the oldest of four kids. I have three younger sisters. My grandparents all were in Los Angeles in the 1920s, and my parents were both born here and kind of grew up in uh, Frankie uh, and Annette, like, you know, beach crowd kind of. Okay. That's that's, that's their vibe. You know, Beach Boise stuff. So we were not anything. I think my grandparents maybe had been... Perhaps they were Presbyterians. They never went to church, not one of them. And so we didn't really know anything about it. We moved up to Seattle. My father was a professor, and uh, he was getting his doctorate at the University of Washington. So we moved up to Seattle. And my parents are the kind of people who sort of get into things in a big way, and then they kind of get out of them and get into something else in a big way. So when I was in uh, fifth grade, they decided to get into religion. This was like in, would have been oh. like, like the late 70s. They got into religion. And so they decided to look at all the different churches. Um, I don't remember this part so well, but they went to different churches and they decided they liked the Catholics the best. So because they do things in a big way, boom, we were all in Catholic school. My parents taught CCD. Uh, I was an altar boy. Like, and then suddenly like, boom, we were Catholics and we were like hardcore into it. At the age of what, at fifth grade, what are you? You're probably 10? Uh, yeah. At the age um, of 10, you go from not praying at home or talking about God at all. Yeah, nothing, zero. And then you are just going to church all the time. You've been switched yes. into a private Catholic school, and you're uh-huh. all learning all the prayers. And you, Yes, all of it. Wow. Yeah, and I and I hit me at a very vulnerable kind of age, I guess, um, because like a lot of it stuck with me. I mean, I feel like I knew more kind of like Catholic doctrine than, than the kids who had grown up with it. Because, you know, often the people who, who are converse to something learn it all more. Sure. You learn it as an adult and as a choice. 
So, you know, I had a rosary that was blessed by the Pope. You know, I had wow, a, <laughs> wow. you know, like I clutched at night. Um, we were, we were into it. And then that was through about ninth grade. Uh, Cause I went to uh, my freshman year to Catholic high school. And then we moved to Tacoma because my dad got a job teaching there. And then boom, we were out of it and we never went back. And we've never been to mass since. While you're in high school. Yeah. I went my freshman year uh, to a Catholic high school. And then when we moved, we started going to public school. And that was basically the end of religion in our <laughs> family. Whoa. So we, what a wild story. So as you already mentioned, these are impressionable years. Uh, it sounds like maybe it was four years of your life. Maybe well, five. I guess it seems longer than that. In my mind, I would, like, if you had said to me, like, you know, because I know you went to Catholic school, but I thought oh, I yeah. went to Catholic school too, even though it wasn't the whole time at all. But I feel like it was. I mean, I feel like it really hit me hard. You wow. know, I wanted to be a priest when I was in you know school. I mean, I uh, not in high school anymore, but like when I was in like seventh, I thought about you know, oh my God, priesthood. I had the same thing. I, I often I often wondered to myself, you know, is it a spiritual inclination or did I just know at that stage of my life that I wanted to be on stage with everybody looking at me. I sometimes wonder which one was more dominant. Oh my God. It's so funny you say that. I, I really um, have thought that too, because the part I liked about being an altar boy was you didn't have to listen to the kind of boring mass part, but you got to stand up on stage. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, the, we used to have these, oh God, you'd think I should know the name of it, but we had these kind of, you know, plates with handles that you put under someone's chin while the priest puts the communion in the person's mouth. Absolutely. Yeah. So that the host doesn't fall to the floor. Yes, exactly. So that's my favorite part because you, and we're in a big church, and so everyone's coming up to, oh, you got to see every every family, every every friend from school. Oh, wow. So, I, yes, I've often thought maybe I just like the on stage bit. So when you talk about this time, I mean, this is uh, such an interesting story, and I'm so glad I get to talk to you about it. <laughs> so I really did go Catholic school from kindergarten through my bachelor's yeah. degree. I went through, I went to a Jesuit high school, a Jesuit college. I've always, my entire education, there were priests hanging around or I was taking theology or something. But I have no doubt that the emotional impact and the psychological impact that you're implying is true, that you feel like you really did have that throughout your entire high school year as well. And you were devout enough, a believer enough at that age. You loved the religion enough and at least the, the process of it enough to have entertained the idea of wanting to be a priest as we both connected about. How long did it take you to realize that you were no longer a Catholic because of your parents, but maybe you still were personally? And how did it evolve from there? Like, when did you stop being a Catholic? Or when did you, did you go further into it personally so that you could get out of it later? Or what happened? That is a great question. And I have not really thought about that exactly. It's really, that's so interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I like the trappings of it at the time. You know, this was the this was the age of like the guitar mass and the beginning of like Pope John Paul II. You know, so oh, it was a very yeah. liberalizing time. We had nuns, but they didn't dress like how you think nuns would dress. Um, yeah. You know, it was we had our, our priests like wore sandals like Jesus. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was a, it was it was that kind of vibe, um, and I really enjoyed the social life of it. But once we left and moved, I started, well, you know what, you know what really part of it was, honestly, was my freshman year at, at Catholic school, at Catholic high school, where I felt there was so much cruelty. It was such an unpleasant place. Mm. And I, I felt, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was bullied, um, as, you know, as a lot of people are, but it just seemed like this is not a place of love. This is not a nice place. And it really kind of soured me on a lot of it because I feel like, you know, kindness has always been a very important thing to me and empathy and generosity of spirit. And I didn't feel that there. I felt, I'm sure a lot of people have been to Catholic school will talk about, those aren't necessarily the first things that might come to mind, those <laughs> qualities I just said. But, yeah. um, but I certainly didn't feel that once we got out of once I left our, our, our church that we were at. When you talk about your time as a freshman, did you know that you were gay at the time? Did you know that? When was your moment of dawning <laughs> to that? 
That's a big question, really. Um, no, I didn't know that. There wasn't such a thing in the world that I could know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't know that that was an option, really. Uh, I knew that I was seemed sort of different than some of the other boys. Um, you know, <laughs> um, I, I knew that I got bullied. I got called, you know, fag and faggot and stuff um, by people sometimes, which is pretty painful when you don't really know what you're doing wrong, you know, yeah. not like I was sleeping with people at the time. So there was nothing, you know, I hadn't done anything. So like, it's as if people saw yeah. something in me that I didn't know what it was. I can imagine now, and now looking back, I'm sure I was like a sweet little gay boy. <laughs> you know, it would be easy to spot from about a mile away. But at the time I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I wasn't treated well i had girlfriends in high school and college a lot of gay guys do um yeah. you know that were successful relationships in fact and very nice i'm still friendly with my high school girlfriend but i didn't know what that was i didn't know what that that option was that really didn't happen until well later in high school later in high school uh, I, it kind of became clear but i pushed those feelings down i mean i pushed that down partly because i just it wasn't Again, and it didn't seem like an option in the world and certainly did not seem like an option if I wanted to have a career as an actor. There was no way that could happen. Did you, are you also talking about like, even in your home, you're saying it didn't feel like an option. You must have also sort of felt like even in the home, it didn't really feel like you had it. Well, when I say not an option, I mean, I didn't know what a gay person was. This yeah. is a different, you know, you've got to think back away. It's like, you know, now it's out there and there's representation on television, for example, and things like this that people know. Um, I hope it's better for young gay kids now. We know, of course, that there are many who are still bullied and thrown out of their houses and all kinds of horrible things. But I still hope it's gotten you know better than it was. Um, when I was that age, there, there were not gay people. There, I didn't even know what that was. It wasn't like right. an option. Right. I just knew that I felt sort of different from the other boys. I, yeah, I think there was for my family some. And it's more like feelings, you know, like why don't you go out and play with the boys? Why don't you go and play sports with the boys? You know, and I'd be like, I'd rather play stuffed animals. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. And so there was always a shame, some kind of shame about like, why don't I want to go play football? Of course, I know why I don't want to go because the boys are mean to me, and it's not a good time. So yeah, right. um, that's why. But there was, certainly was pressure. But I, I want to be very clear that my parents and my family have always been super accepting. I mean, when I. You know, I, I have, as um, I said, three sisters, I have eight nieces and nephews. Everybody has been totally accepting of me being there. I mean, it's never been a question. No one's ever batted an eye. My parents are the same. I mean, they have some gay friends. They've been absolutely supportive. And I'm like the winning lottery of like a good family who has accepted and been uh, celebrated it. So, well, that's I'm beautiful. That's beautiful. Did any of those feelings that so often accompany religion regarding homosexuality, did that stuff get anchored in you in those, in that short, that temporarily very short, but emotionally mm. and psychologically very long and impressionable period of being in the church? Does the, did that stuff get driven into you? Do you remember priests talking about that or? I don't really, I mean, to be fair, I don't remember them saying, uh, you know, um, uh, oh, let me quote Leviticus to you, kid. Yeah. I don't remember things like that. Um, my, I have um, quite a few issues, you know, with, with organized religion and things now, but they don't stem particularly from that. I mean, as I said, I think the moment of my, my, my little drop in into Catholicism came at a very liberal time in the, in the church in mm. that we were told that the parts of the Old Testament were, were mythology that were made, you know, as stories to help Israelites, a, a tribe, you know, many, many, many years ago, understand the world in which they lived, not as like literal teaching. That was how we were taught at that time, which is, might surprise people. But that's yeah, no, that's, that's healthy uh, from my perspective. It was and a liberal moment, I think, in, in the church. I don't know how it is now. Uh, my issues with the church come in, in other places um, and not even with the Catholicism so much. I remember like when I was in, when I was in high school, I had this girlfriend. Um, this was in my public school uh, who was from a very fundamentalist family. And I, when I met her father, he pulled out a Bible that was marked in different colors, different passages marked in different colors. And each one was to refute another strain of 
Christianity as being wrong. So like the Catholic stuff is marked in red for all the parts where the Catholics were wrong. Wow. And I just, and I tried to debate them because I was like thinking I was still Catholic then. And um, I just thought, wow, this is ugly and divisive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly not welcoming. (laughs) No, so that's where more of my issues came. Bill, this is a great place to take a mini break here, and then we'll be back with uh, a lot more in the second segment. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Bill. And Bill, I'm really interested to hear about how your career starts because you have a lot of success at a young age, but also that story also has something to say about your sexuality and your sexuality has something to say about that story. And so you start kind of where you want to start that story and tell me about that journey. Sure. Um, you know, I left Tacoma. I went to uh, NYU. I was very eager to get to uh, New York and get out of uh, Tacoma, honestly. Mm. Um, and that was in 1981. You know, even then, though, I had in my head this idea that you cannot be gay and have a career. Just did, there was no um, role model that I saw wow. who was doing such a thing. It just didn't seem. It seemed absolutely prohibitive. I, I remember um, at NYU, there's a musical theater uh, program, and there was a huge scandal because uh, at some drunken party, uh, two of the kind of chorus boys from <laughs> the musical theater program were caught kissing. It wow. was like the scandal of, of of all time. You know what I mean? That's in New York. You know, two guys from the musical theater department, you know, I, I guess now that wouldn't even, you know, would blink. But at the time it was like, oh, my God, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. Wow. So it really, I feel like it messed with my confidence in a big way. And I think when you're acting, for me, it's always been like trying to put a cover on something, trying to act a different kind of way. So I moved to Los Angeles. Um, I had had friends who were living here. You know, it took a while to, to start working, but I did a play in a small theater about an AIDS support group, and uh, uh, I played a gay guy in that, and it was pretty out there, and I got a great kind of response from it, and some people from uh, NYPD Blue saw it, and they remembered me when they had a part come up that was like this. Well, I was meant to come on NYPD Blue and do two episodes as a kind of a funny really? gay secretary who was filling in. And they just kept me. I just stayed and stayed and stayed, and I never really left. Um, wow. I worked on the show for uh, for ten years. Bill, that's amazing. I remember you as such a memorable role in that show. You were so delightful, and you you were such a point of light and fragility. I feel like in that show, a sensitivity in that show that was so harsh. Is that right? Is that oh how God, you felt? You're, you're making me so excited because that was my whole like thing. I can't believe you basically just said my whole concept, which wow. was this is a very dark, harsh, ugly world, and this character was a little, a little bit of yellow in this thing. Like I just thought he was a little bit yellow, yeah. a little piece of yellow that floated through the thing, and a very positive, upbeat, and could never be um, broken down. You know, the, the whole the whole reason he was there was to to be like a foil for. Um, the Andy Sipowitz character played by Dennis Franz, who was, you know, kind of an Archie Bunker, very, um, very prejudiced kind of guy. And so what I loved about television, and I still do, is that you can tell stories over a long period of time. So, you know, by the end of the, of the, of the first time, first season I was there, you know, he wouldn't really talk to me. I mean, the character, you know, I mean, he was very mean and, and unpleasant to me. And I just kept being sunny and give him a, you know, greeting card or something. Right. The character, I mean, and then, um, Eventually, um, at the end of one season, he, he shook my hand 
And then one time he stood up for me when some other cops said something mean about the character. And then um, later I babysat his kid, I cut his hair, and in the final season I officiated at his wedding. Oh, so, um, wow. But that took ten, literally 10 years of time in real time. And I feel that the country uh, changed and grew during that time as well. And um, I'd like to feel that we were a little part of that. Were you one of the only openly gay characters on television at that time? I, I don't remember the TV landscape well enough. Oh, yeah, this was actually before Ellen. This was, there weren't a lot. For me on a personal level, so that's my, that's like kind of how it was on the show um, and how it worked. And, but on a personal level, you know, when I started, when I got the job, because I was playing a gay character, um, and I started doing like, the, the show was super popular and I started getting to do a lot of press right, right away and I wasn't really prepared for it. And I didn't know what to say when they asked if I, because they would ask if I was gay and I didn't know what to say. And wow. I had a publicist and an agent who said, don't, don't say it. Um, just say you don't talk about your personal life. And I felt really stupid saying that because it, one, it, seemed, it was probably pretty obvious to everybody. And uh, it certainly was obvious to a lot of, a lot of the gay reporters who were asking me the question. <laughs> yeah. um, and I just felt like an ass. And um, and then I got better agents, and <laughs> who I love, who I'm still with, and I have surrounded myself with better people. And I, I have a friend, Jonathan Tolens, who's a playwright, who uh, is fantastic. And he said to me, you know, do you want to be at the end of the one era you know, which is like denying who you are and trying to cover it up and pretend like I've been going on. Or do you want to be at the beginning of a new era? And wow. when it was put in those kind of terms, you know, it's pretty easy to choose when you hear it like that. And um, I always thank him for for that because I, it really affected me. What a beautiful and powerful moment of clarity. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So then I just started saying that I was gay and that I still didn't talk about my personal life because I didn't really want to get into that. But I, I started saying it out and it was such a relief. And I feel like it's one of the best choices I've ever made because I've never regretted it at all. NYPD Blue was 12 seasons? Is that what I saw? It was on for 12 seasons, yeah. And uh, I came in I came in the end of the second season, so I, I was there for the rest of the time. And then at what season did you personally start admitting to the public that you oh, were also I only gay. did the, I only did the sort of like uh you know that was like for the first couple months okay so almost almost immediately you were like no this just doesn't oh, feel yeah, right. yeah I mean we did it for the first it, I came at the end of that first season and so it was a, you know I don't know maybe five months or something and I just felt but I did a lot of press during that at that beginning you know what I mean like I did a I remember you know there's a guy from people magazine we did a whole thing he came to my apartment and you know interview me took pictures and everything and then you know he writes in the thing like you know bill is a you know is single and lives in west hollywood and it's sort of like oh you're just being like nasty to me to try to make it seem like but i understand because i think people were eager for people to to come out this is also in the time of outing which doesn't happen as much in the same way now it was a very popular thing to kind of try to out people and i didn't really want that to happen either because it was could be kind of vicious. Right. So what you're what you're specifically talking about there is that uh, journalists were sleuthing. They were sleuths to try to be the one that cracked the story about this particular famous yes. person is gay. And then that would yeah. destroy you in some ways. It could well, it could be very it would be detrimental. Be ahead of it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I had a little taste of it, and I thought like this is not going to go well. You've got to be a way better faker than I am. You know what I mean? People are like showing up with, you know, women as their dates and things. You got to be way better baker. And I was not prepared at all to do that. One so. thing I wanted to ask you about briefly, I, I, you know, I don't know how much time we can spend on this, but I don't remember exactly George Michael's chronology in there, but I know he was massively popular in the eighties and remained so in the nineties. And I don't know when he was officially outed, but I know that it was absolutely devastating for him and his career. And I wondered how you were handling a story like that around you in the world. I guess I have always, and, and, and it, people did have their lives ruined and or hurt, but there was, um, and uh, I still know all these guys, you know, there's a, a rather smallish contingent of guys who were um, in my category, you know, who were out uh, early on like that. I have such respect for them. Um, we all know who each other are. And, you know, in fact, I, in fact, I just have worked on this um, this digital drama called After Forever, which is on Amazon. And it is, you know, written, produced, and stars a bunch of these guys. So when I was in New York and we filmed that, it was like, 
is Mitchell Anderson, Kevin Spiritus, a bunch of guys who were out early you know, before Will and Grace, you know, and it's like, I just have massive respect because we all know how difficult it was and how scary it was mm. at that time. And you know, Queer Folk was just coming on then, which was did a great job of, of pushing that kind of forward. But the thing is, I remember when we were, I, I would see those guys, um, you know, at events and things and Queerest Folk reached one audience, a gay audience, in a big way, obviously. Um, NYPD Blue reached a different crowd. It, it reached, as I said, these military guys and, and cops and people who live in red states, I guess. Yeah. And I hope that we were able to, to reach a different crowd of guys who would never have watched, you know, Queerest Folk or something. So I think it takes both in the world to move things forward. I think it takes... Yeah. Good cop, bad cop, if you will. It takes it takes two sides of things. So I feel very happy with that choice. And I'll say, I don't know if it affects your career going forward. It probably does. But I have enjoyed playing gay characters. I'm happy to play gay characters. There are a plethora of them in the world and stories to be told. And so I don't think it needs to be a pejorative, that kind of, oh, now you can only play gay characters. It's like, okay, good. So yeah, right. that's how I feel about it. Well, it's really beautiful to hear you talk about it, Bill. I, I, I'm not sure I really understood how... I hadn't thought enough about what that moment was like for you. Obviously, I made the joke about you were in my home in Nebraska, you know, in my <laughs> Catholic home in Omaha, Nebraska. And I have no doubt, looking back on it, that you helped educate me to some extent. Your character in NYPD Blue helped enlighten me to the well, world in that way. I, I I think it's one of those things, like I probably didn't even realize how much it was helping me understand that aspect of society. Yeah, I've always given big kudos to like MTV, who started showing, um, like in the real world, you know, started having gay characters as part of the scene very early and just sort of normalized that so people aren't like freaked out by it or something. It becomes like a part of the fabric of life. I remember saying to David Milch, who's a brilliant, uh, you know, writer of NYPD Blue, uh, at one point I said to him, do we, I mean, like politically, should we be? He's like, whoa, 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 because we don't have any obligation except to tell true stories, to tell stories in a true manner. That's our obligation. And that's always stayed with me as I think that that is the best way to, to reach people rather than making some kind of preaching or saying I'm right or you're wrong. I think that the best way to do that is to tell stories that people can relate to. And, and with human empathy, people come to say, oh, wow, well, my son's gay or my neighbor's gay or that guy on TV is gay and it's not so bad. Bill, this is a little early to take the last break, but it'll leave us a longer third segment. But I just think it's such a lovely place to end this part of the conversation. And we'll get to dig into a lot more stuff after we take one more break, okay? Great. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with our final segment with Bill. And Bill, something that you mentioned to me off mic is that you had a cancer scare. And I don't know anything about it. So please just let me know how was it revealed to you and at what point in your life? Yeah, um, it wasn't a scare. It was uh, cancer. I had uh, tonsil cancer, which is uh, sounds kind of odd. It's um, oropharyngeal. That's your kind of cavity of your mouth cancer. So it's in the head and neck cancer and I um uh that was nine years ago super super lucky I had um uh, chemo and radiation and and a very bad summer in 2011 um you know oh my god I was doing a play at Antius that's how I discovered it and you you know our our theater company yeah. I was doing a play there and I had a lot of talking to do and I felt like my um you know when you yawn the, the soft palate in the back of your throat goes up yeah. And I felt like it was droopy. I just felt like it was droopy. And I thought maybe I had a swollen lymph node. And I didn't want to get people in the place sick. So I went to the doctor and, um, you know, first they gave me a Z-pack and sent me home. And it didn't get any better. And uh, uh, sent me to an ENT, an awesome guy that I'm crazy about. And um, 
he found and it was cancer. And so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a really shocking thing when that happens. It's happened to many, many people, obviously. So I just, I, uh, the, the treatment for it is, um, it's pretty severe. It's a, it's a, not, it's a pretty unpleasant treatment, but it is, um, a pretty successful one. Uh, so I had, um, cause I had, uh, chemo and, and radiation concurrently. Um, so it's like, I was a mess in the summer, you know, you, I couldn't, Eventually, you just sort of can't swallow, and you stop eating. I lost a lot of weight and was on, you know, IV food and everything. What stage was it when it was discovered? This was a stage three slash four. They couldn't decide if there was one lymph node or two lymph nodes involved because there was cancer in one of the lymph nodes, but it happily did not spread anywhere else. But it was so very progressed. I mean, that number is high. That's a scary yeah, number. Yeah, it is. No, this is not a joke. This is not like a little, this is not a little thing. No. This is, this is bad. But with the, the treatment that they do... It is. It has a fairly successful rate of of, of getting better. It's it's been nine years. I feel great. Um, there's been no kind of recurrence. I was very lucky that it was caught before it, you know, spread anywhere else. Once things metastasize, you know, that's when 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 it's particularly bad. Was there surgery involved? Did things have to be cut? They didn't do surgery. Um, I I saw a surgeon and they discussed the idea, but honestly, in the back of the throat. Um, there's not a lot of yet, but when you have cancer, if you're going to cut something out, you have to cut around it and leave a, a fairly large margin. That's not an awesome thing to do in the in the head. Um, yeah. So no, they did. We did did uh, chemo and radiation, and I'm a super good patient. So you know, I did everything <laughs> they said, and I uh, you know followed to the letter what the doctors said to do, and I had great advice and uh, an amazing support network, including uh, Kitty Swink, you know, who you had on the show before talking about her cancer. So I know she was very well versed in, in this. Um, yeah. So Bill, I want to, I want to access something about this moment. Okay. Hmm. Are you single at the time? Oh no. I've, I've been with my partner for nearly 30 years. Oh wow. Okay. Congrats. So you m- would have met this person when you were on the show? Uh, before. Oh, before. wow. Um, I was 28. So it's like 30 years ago. Yeah, I was 28. So we've been together ever since. We actually, um, we got married last year just. Uh, oh, <laughs> congratulations. We had, we had spent, we, thank you. But we, we, um, we're pretty private about, about ourselves. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, not with our friends or my family or anything, but, Tony's a lawyer. He's only mildly interested in the theater, I think. (laughs) As long if he sees your plays, he's seen enough plays. Pretty much. Um, (laughs) No, he's been. No, he's very good. Actually, he's a he's a he's a donor to NTS. So, oh, I have Um, no doubt. I have no doubt. But you know, we've always been. We've had a. It's. I I don't. I don't like to give relationship advice to people, but I'll just say for us, it's worked very well. To um, he has his career and his life, and I have my career and my life, and then we come home and we're very happy here. Yeah. Um, so yes, he helped me um, immensely in that. I'll say this: it is terrible to be the partner of someone who's sick because there's just nothing you can do. You know, I would be like throwing up in the bathroom, and you know, he'd be like, "Are you all right?" And it's like. You know, there's no, it's it's right. so out of that person's control. It's a terrible position to be in. Did you have any moments of? Lots of people go through this. It's a very unfortunate thing, but cancer is ubiquitous in our society. Everybody yeah. knows somebody that's battled cancer and probably knows multiple people. So yes, it's not uncommon, but still, it's it's a flashpoint, and. When you hit that moment, what did you, what did your brain start doing? Did you let yourself contemplate that this could be the end? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. And then I, you know, well, there's a lot to say about this, obviously, every kind of emotion and feeling. But at the end of the day, what I've really taken from the whole thing is I feel so grateful and so happy in life um you know a friend of mine said like once this is over you, you can never be that upset again because you know what a bad day really is mm. and that's how i feel i mean you come out of something like that, or i've come out of this and feeling like oh colors seem brighter and the sky seems nicer and plants are nice and uh, i just feel much more grateful in a way so it it was a real wake-up call to me to be grateful and thankful 
And it sounds weird, but I've been happier since it happened. Mm. I think I was dissatisfied before this and feeling like, oh, maybe life isn't fair and, you know, thoughts like that. And Career not going the way you wanted it or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, where's my career? And, uh, and I have just been so much more grateful and much more at peace since it happened. And not that I would wish to do it again or I would wish it on anyone, uh, but... But having been through it, I feel like in a funny way, it was the thing that was maybe needed to kind of wake me up. Somebody said to me that, you know, life comes knocking at the door. It comes, it comes kind of grabbing your sleeve and saying, oh, I have to tell you something. Hey, I have to tell you something. And if you and you say, oh, I, I can't listen to you now. And then they knock on the door a little bit louder. And, and eventually, if you don't listen, it'll come banging on the door at 2 a.m. and say, OK, now you're going to listen to me. And that's what I felt like this was, kind of a bang on the door to say, hey, a slap in the face to say, hey, wake up for a second. Let's start paying attention here to what's important and what you care about. And, you know, a real slap in the face, cold water in the face, whatever kind of metaphor you want to make. What mindset were you in before that? What what would you categorize as the pre-cancer dissatisfactions of your life that you feel are maybe trivial now? I think it was... um, I think it was a lot of um, like post series blues. Why isn't my career going better? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel just sad, which is an easy thing to feel in Los Angeles. Believe me, it's, I'm not the only person feeling that way. No, no, no. I mean, I, you're, I, I felt that too. Well, I'll just say this. I had a friend who said to me um, before this happened, before the cancer, he had said recently before that, you know, it's like you just never have joy. I just never see you joyous about anything. Wow. And I thought, oh. Well, of course, at the time, I thought, that's not true. That's not true. But it was true. And so I think, honestly, that, you know, I have some woo-woo-y kind of thoughts about things. You know, but I, I think in some way, maybe I manifested this to answer that question or solve that problem. Wow. I have had those kinds of thoughts. Um, the idea that, you know, you, I, people always are saying about cancer, like, Oh, I fought the cancer or I battled the cancer or something. That wasn't how I kind of saw it in my head because I saw it as part of me. Cancer is cells that are growing too quickly. You know, if something triggers them to keep growing at some kind of crazy rate. And I thought, it's not something that's invaded me. It's me. And if I had some small amount of agency in creating this, maybe I would then also have the agency to calm it down and make it stop. Now, that's not to say I didn't do every, like, Western medicine thing there was to do, and I did it all. But that was where my mind kind of went, and it seemed to have worked. Wow. I wouldn't put that on anyone else, and I wouldn't suggest that anyone's way is wrong. But for me, that's how I kind of visualized the whole thing. And so I I kind of tried to calm it down. And, and the idea that it was in my throat, you know, which is then about... Have I stopped myself from, you know, speaking my truth? Have I, have I held back on, on speaking out my, my thoughts or my feelings? And right. There's an enormous amount of symbolism. So there was a, so those are the, those are kind of the spiritual aspects of, of what I feel like I went through for me. Again, I would never suggest anybody, you know, <laughs> don't, don't go to the doctor. Yeah, they, this is not a cure. <laughs> but. <laughs> Because I know there are people. I mean, it happens. It happens. People, you know, do alternative kinds of medicines and things, and that's awesome. I mean, believe me, I was like, take all comers. I, oh my God, I had like, I had my friend's uh, mother saying masses for me back to the Catholicism, saying masses for me um, in their church in Illinois. Mm-hmm. My friend uh, gave me a um, medallion from someone called Father Solanus, who is, um, you know, on his way to sainthood. And so I keep a, a medallion of his in my wallet to this day. Uh, I was kind of like, I take all comers. You know what I mean? I take all comers. So when you have a bad day now, over the last nine years, what does your mind do when you're having a bad day? Does it immediately go back to cancer, to remembering where you were? Is, do you live with it every day? I think it's hard to keep any feeling like that going all the time. Um, you know, on the fifth anniversary of my, of, of, of getting better, I had one bad summer. It was the summer of, you know, I started, I started um, 
chemo and radiation the day after Memorial Day and the day after Labor Day, uh, I was done. I mean, that's what I kind of gave myself and that's how it kind of fell. So I had a bad summer. So five years later, I, I walked the Camino de Santiago. Do you know the Camino? It's an ancient Catholic pilgrimage through Europe. You walk across yes, Spain. Yes, I was going to say it was Spain, right? Okay, very good. Yes, I've heard yes, of this. Yes, it's, okay. it's an ancient pilgrimage. and it, uh, So it starts in France and you end up in, um, walk over the Pyrenees, walk across northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela, um, where um, supposedly St. James' uh, body is laid to rest. So uh, it's a long, it's a, you know, it takes, uh, you know, five, six weeks to walk it. And um, so I did that as kind of a celebration of, of, wow. of the experience. And it also is like extremely moving. And I, in the same way, I try to remember that, a little piece of that um, all the time. But it fades, you know, those feelings fade a little. But yes, I do try to tap back into them. And I feel like, Every day, if something happened, if I, you know, God forbid something should happen, you know, tomorrow, I feel like this has been a great day. I've got the chance to talk to you. I had delicious poached eggs. Hmm. I had a lovely cappuccino. You know <laughs> what I mean? And I'm looking at the sun. Tony's upstairs working. It's like the cats are here. It's like every day is sort of perfect in its own little way. And that maybe is good enough. It's plenty. It's not good enough. It's fabulous. It's 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 plenty good. It's plenty darn good. Yeah, that's that's a place. It's hard to live there. You have to actively choose to live there. Now, can we do that all the time? I don't know, but I yeah. I feel like I'm not bad at it. Honestly, <laughs> I'm too bad at that. I think I'm pretty good at that, actually. Post cancer, it's clear what you're saying is you you wanted to embrace gratitude. You wanted to embody the joyfulness that your friend wasn't seeing in you prior to mm -hmm. the cancer. You want to live in the present, this moment you're talking about right now, where you and I are speaking and it's a, a moment of real connection. I'm feeling it too. I told you before the show, this is, this is my moment of presence in the week where I really force myself to stop and think and sit and listen to a beautiful story that helps me reflect on my own life. And it sounds like what you're saying is that was the lesson. That was the choice. Was there anything else that, you know, other trappings that you, choices you made, whether it was philanthropy or whether it was doing more theater or whether it was more walks or is it just, was it something that you were awakened, you put something away and now you're just, there's just a, a blanket of gratitude that's there that wasn't there before. Is that kind of the way, is that what you're saying? It is, except for one little part when you're, you're so, so good at this because you, you make me think of things I didn't even, hadn't really thought quite about, um, which is that, and again, this is just me and I wouldn't want to put this on any uh, other cancer uh, patients or anything, but I found cancer to be very self-involving. It was all about me. It was very inward looking because I felt so sick. I, I, I was so weak. I mean, I could barely walk at certain points. You know what I mean? It was, it was all about just me trying to breathe and trying to, you know, eat some pudding. You know what I mean? It was mm. so inward that I thought if I can get out of this, I really want to make myself more outward looking and not as self-involved in a funny way. So I think in a lot of ways that then I think about that when I'm at NTS working as artistic director there and the experiences that we can give to our audience or that I can give to the actors who come and work with us. I know it can be a meaningful experience for them doing the show, being in the show, seeing the show. Somehow I feel like that's a service that I can do and provide to other artists and to uh, our, our audiences as well is to help tell stories about other people and sort of make empathy bigger in the world and be outward facing in that way because having had a taste of being <laughs> so inward focused um, it was not pleasant in a little way <laughs> if mm. that makes any sense yeah I discovered I was We've talked about this. Like, so I was raised Catholic. I was, and, and, and in the Jesuit training, it's very, you're, you're, it's drilled in you 
to be outward focused. It doesn't mean everyone is, of course, especially when you're a teenager. But the whole thing is, well, it was men for others when I was there because it was an all-boy school. But it's, you know, it's men and women for others. It's people for others. And there's always been a feeling that I've been happiest when, you know, when I was young, like, you know, have you ever heard that? When I was in college, like, there was this, this interesting conversation, you know, what is altruism, right? Altruism is ultimately just to serve yourself because, you know, you're giving something away, but really you're just making yourself feel good. But the truth is, is that is what altruism is. Like, you, what you give comes back to you tenfold and you feel better when you give. And I try, I have always found that when I'm focused on someone else or, you know, caring about someone else or trying to be open or I'm making a, I'm, I made a good choice to put something aside that was, that was a, my own roadblock about something and I, and I let someone else be heard or I engaged or I did something positive for someone else. I felt better about my own life. And I think to me, that's the, what I'm hearing when you talk about that. I do feel that way. Um, I, I mean, I, I just feel very grateful. That's all I can kind of say. I feel, and I didn't used to feel that way. And, it, and it's, it's really, you know, talk about sinful or something, but it's really sinful to not have felt that way with all the advantages that I've had and all the luck that I've had and all the good fortune that I've had. The fact that I didn't necessarily feel that way. I have a great relationship. I have a great family. I have, you know, I'm even in this pandemic, it's a perfect example. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm so lucky. I have space and, and health and uh, all the things that, that, person could want and so to not be to not recognize that to not acknowledge that would be very churlish and i hope that i've used the gifts that i've received in a responsible and uh admirable way bill that's the end of the show <laughs> did i did we do it <laughs> we did it <laughs> it's beautiful man it's beautiful man thank you okay my gosh Am I on the hero's journey there? Am I, have I gone there and back again? Yeah. <laughs> Brought knowledge back with me? <laughs> yes, indeed. And disseminated it along the way. I really appreciate you sharing this. And I think I said it on this show. I don't know. I say it all the time. This makes my day better and my week better to get to share with someone about these lessons and follow your journey with you and then feel like I came to the end. And I'm like, yeah, right. Gratitude. I love it, and I, I feel honored whenever I get to be on the other side of this. So thanks for being a part of it, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a real treat. All right, and thank you all for listening. said to me at one point you won the game i mean you won it's like you worked you've you know i've been like 30 years of vesting and you know sag or whatever and you know i had my show i made my money and it's like because you you won because this is what everyone wants like you won and i thought oh my god that's advice is certainly worth the 10 percent i've been paying all these years <laughs> 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 because it's always stayed with me it's like when i get upset i think like you won you won you know what I mean? You yeah, won. Yeah. It's like, how many people wish they had had this? And I'm like, uh, it's easy to forget. It's really easy to forget. And, and Yes, it is.